Welcome to Season 2 of Mindfulness Off the Cushion. If you're familiar with the challenges of living mindfully and are looking for help in your daily dance with suffering, our goal is to be a resource for you. Once again, we're brought to you by the Austin Mindfulness Center. As we have learned, practicing mindfulness can help cultivate a healthy relationship with ourselves and our suffering. This, in turn, can allow future moments to unfold in a way that can lead to the alleviation of our suffering. Mindfulness can be learned and practiced on your own with a mindfulness instructor or also, as we have already discussed, with a therapist who has been trained in the various mindfulness-based interventions or modalities. If these two words are a bit foreign to you, just think of them as something like a framework or process that a therapist might use to help their clients learn and practice mindfulness in a way that can bring awareness and compassion to their suffering and ultimately lay the groundwork for healing. In today's somewhat geeky and acronym-heavy episode with Dr. Sears, we'll talk about the original eight-week program that started it all, as well as the various clinical interventions that have been spawned over the years to address different presenting issues. We'll wrap up exploring ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, and spend a little bit of time there because ACT gives us some specific guidance around how we can bring positive changes into our lives. Imagine, if you will, that you learn mindfulness, you practice it regularly, and then after some time, you might say, okay, here I am, I'm present and fully aware of myself in this very moment, now what? Well, that's where ACT comes in, and we're excited to share that with you in this week's episode of Mindfulness Off the Cushion. Welcome back, Dr. Sears. Today, sir, we want to talk about the westernization of mindfulness, more specifically the impact that it has had on Western medicine. You might even use the word the medicalization of mindfulness. Why has it been so impactful in the Western world? And why have we seen so many you know, therapeutic modalities created because mindfulness is so popular? Yeah, it's a great question. So let's see if we can unpack that. Um, obviously, mindfulness just means paying attention. So no matter what you're doing, if you have a better ability to pay attention to what's really happening, what the real problem is, how I'm responding to it, uh, what I could be doing differently in this situation, you're probably going to get a better outcome. So because there was so much research on it, it just keeps producing results. And, and I can't help thinking too, that people have a personal experience when they start practicing mindfulness and they want to share it with other people. We're always supposed to be objective as scientists and we do our best, but we're motivated by things that we know helps people and helps ourselves. And so, you know, I think back to the 70s when John Kabat-Zinn was getting all this started. And so he, like a lot of people, practiced meditation and mindfulness and had a personal 
experience with it. And, um, you know, I went through this issue myself where, you know, you could spend years doing this and then somebody comes to you who's suffering and you can't just say, well, sit on a cushion for a couple of years and see what that does for you. You know, in this moment, they need some help. And so John Kabat-Zinn, who, by the way, wasn't even a therapist, his PhDs in molecular biology, you know, I think he'd make a great therapist, but here he was in a hospital setting trying to figure out how can I help these people? And the majority of people initially who came to him were sent because the doctor said, hey, there's nothing we can do for your medical situation or for your chronic pain. You're just going to have to learn to live with it. So he thought, well, let's see if we can practice being in the moment, first of all, not constantly worried about what might happen or all the things that happened in the past. And how do I learn to relate to my thoughts and feelings and physical pain in a different way. And because he and his colleagues collected a lot of data that really helps get the ball rolling. And certainly mindfulness can be used in so many different ways. But if you're going to do research, you have to have something that we can test and replicate, you know, do it again. And so he came up with an eight session program called Mindfulness Based stress reduction. It's still out there and it's a wonderful program and it's produced all these great results. So it sort of started this uh, sort of foundation that other modalities adapted. So Dr. John Kabat-Zinn founding MBSR, the eight-week psychoeducational program, lays down the, the, the foundation here, the groundwork. Since 1979, what other modalities have been implemented? Like what has MBSR given birth to? Well, quite a few actually. And if nothing else, it inspired a whole lot of the clinicians who would go through this for themselves and learn the principles of mindfulness to be adapted in a lot of ways. But one of the biggest ones was mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. We can go more into this at some point, but the creators of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy weren't out to promote mindfulness. I think only one of the three actually even knew what mindfulness was at the time. They were all depression researchers, and they realized that if you've had more than one episode of depression, you're more likely to get depression again. The way the brain gets wired, it wants to keep getting depressed again, or, or I should say it more easily falls back into these old brain grooves. And so in their research, they realized that we need something to help people pay attention to the signs of it coming back. Because if you've, if you've been depressed before, your mood dips and it's harder for you to pull out of that mood dip. And so you got to pay attention before you go sliding down this you know, vicious circle. And in fact, I think they went to Marsha Linehan, who developed dialectical behavior therapy, who said, you should really be talking to John Kabat-Zinn, who started mindfulness-based stress reduction. So they literally watched and saw this as a completely different way of approaching things because in CBT, typically, here's a thought and we've got to attack that thought. We've got to change it. We've got to fix it. And this approach was stepping back and just recognizing the thoughts, not getting caught up in it. And by recognizing it, now I can take action. And we know taking action prevents those downward spirals, and it's easier to take action the sooner you notice. You know, most people don't want to notice when things are going badly, but by noticing, now you have more power to do something before um, it gets bad. So they took that eight-week MBSR program and developed it into a full 
mindfulness-based cognitive therapy program, adding in what we know as therapists in terms of how the mind works and how emotions work. And that's also been adapted into a lot of different eight-week programs. Can you share with me a little bit more about what the structure of this eight-week MBCT program is? Yeah, it's um, typically done as a group. I do think groups are very underutilized today. You know, we've, we're all so independent, but when you do things in a group, you benefit from other people's experience. And certainly as providers, it's much easier to get this to more people when we do it as a group. And again, the benefit of, I see other people going through what I'm going through and normalizes it and we help each other through it. You certainly can do it one-on-one. In fact, there has been research that it works just as well one-on-one as it does in a group. I just prefer a group personally. Uh, There's just much more energy and things to work with. But I think of it as a boot camp for mindfulness. So instead of saying, just be mindful, well, let's set aside time for eight weeks where we're going to learn a concept each week. We're going to practice it together. We're going to process it together. So what was your experience? How did that go? Give you some feedback, uh, help you be more aware of what's going on for you. And then we give you a homework assignment so you can do those mental exercises, build those mindfulness muscles, so to speak. We also give exercises, by the way, of how do you bring this more into your life? So paying more attention when you're taking a shower or brushing your teeth or, you know, driving your car instead of driving for 50 miles and then wondering how you got where you got because you didn't pay any attention to just start practicing being more present in your life and developing those muscles. And it gets more subtle as it goes along. So we start with concrete things like physical body sensations, because that's how you know how you're feeling. If you don't pay any attention to your body, you're not going to know that. And then more subtle, paying attention to the thoughts and what affects the thoughts we have. And then eventually even practicing how to relate differently when something unpleasant happens. Because, hey, wouldn't it be great if just all our stress went away and everybody treated us nicely and there were never wars or anything going on in the world? But meanwhile, things are going to be challenging in life. So instead of just avoiding them or pretending they're not happening or always trying to think positive, can we learn what do we do when things get stressful? How do we handle it when things don't go our way? And can we learn a more skillful way to do that? Or at least a way where we don't get stuck in it. It just sort of flows through. We reset ourselves instead of enduring it, which... There's just so much to endure in life. You're going to wear yourself out. How do we learn to flow with what's happening and at least get out of our own way so we can deal more effectively with the things that are challenging us? And so that eight week gives a chance to really practice those skills. And we've tested it in different ways. Would it be better if it's longer? Maybe. Um, I've also done it. Um, done research on four week programs that were very effective as well. And and seems to depend on the person, but basically just having some sort of consistent practice appears a good way to get started in a mindfulness practice. Over the next handful of episodes, we're going to discuss some of the presenting issues such as anxiety and depression. Some of the things that folks have going on in their lives that, that sparks an interest in mindfulness and could potentially lead them into pursuing therapy. We have so far touched on MBCT. What are some of the other modalities that have been informed by mindfulness 
that perhaps you could just introduce us to during this episode, and then we can unpack them further in future episodes when we speak about these presenting issues. First of all, let me mention the difference between a sort of a training program designed to give you the skills and then set you free and more of modalities of ongoing self-development, whether it's in therapy or something you're doing on your own. As I said, one of the great things about this eight-week program is it's time-limited and it's meant to really just give you a boost and then those skills continue with you after that. You know, so when MBCT was developed, that was the whole point. How do we give people the skills to prevent problems in the future, not keep them in therapy the rest of their lives? So MBCT originally designed to prevent depression, you know, worked really well with that, also been applied to a lot of other things. So that same eight-week structure uh, applied to OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and other anxiety disorders. Um, We did research using it for PTSD, a lot of different pieces there. And then some other people took that same structure and again, adapted it to other specific things, meant to be a time-limited just do it. And the skills do seem to stay with people after they do that. There is a children's version, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy for children. That one is expanded into 12 sessions because the sessions are shorter for kids and there's less formal exercises, a lot more hands-on and activity kinds of exercises. And you know, we got to do some research on this, even using brain scans. And it's just fascinating to see this change is happening in these kids' brains. It's also been adapted to relapse prevention for addictive behaviors, so mindfulness-based relapse prevention. So being able to pay attention when cravings are coming up or my emotions or my desire to avoid feeling bad and how to more skillfully respond uh, in order to reduce those addictive behaviors. There's also a mindfulness-based eating awareness training, and that's a clever acronym because it's MBEAT, and it's designed for eating disorders or just in general to pay more attention to food because we so often just automatically shovel the food down. We don't even notice what we're doing and actually, believe it or not, enjoy your food, pay more attention to it and eat more mindfully. And we can go into that in another episode. There's also now shifting more into a bigger modality of treatment, DBT, which stands for Dialectical Behavior Therapy. Uh, This was started by Marsha Linehan, I think the late 80s, definitely the early 90s. And it was for people that have a lot of difficulty managing their own emotions. Um, It's been applied to a lot of different things now as well. But The idea of dialectics, and by the way, Marshall Linehan was really influenced by mindfulness and other approaches like that. Dialectics is the idea of balancing the extremes. So when you're really caught up in your emotions, you can get to the point where, you know, my life's terrible. I'm wonderful. I love this person. I can't stand to be with this person. And there's this instability that happens. And so, how do we learn to? hold both of those you know that life is difficult and what can i do in this moment to enjoy myself to the best ability that i can given the circumstances you know this ability to balance the extremes 
And so mindfulness becomes very important. How can I just be in what I'm doing now, not too lost uh, in things? How can I notice these thoughts without constantly fighting with them? How can I learn about my own emotions and the full extent of those emotions? This podcast is sponsored by the Austin Mindfulness Center, the premier mental health counseling center in Texas for mindfulness-based therapy, education, and coaching. If you're an individual or couple struggling with stress, anxiety, depression, relationship issues, or you're just looking to better equip yourself to gracefully navigate these turbulent times, you can visit us online at austinmindfulness.org and request an appointment today. Now let's get back to our podcast. By far my favorite, though, is called acceptance and commitment therapy. And we can definitely go deep into this, but let me try to give you a quick overview. This is a really broad way of understanding the human mind and the processes of change. In fact, very recently, they went into 55,000 studies of what creates change? What is it that helps human beings change? And they distilled these 55,000 studies of what's called mediational processes down to six, six things that we need to pay attention to to create change in our lives. And this was already present in the research of ACT. So it's very exciting. And it's more than just a therapy. It's used in business or just in life in general. So maybe instead of acceptance commitment therapy, you could call it acceptance commitment training. What these people did is they said, wow, you've got all these different therapies. We've got all this stuff that works. Um, how do we make sense of all of this and put it together for people to help them live healthier lives? And what they realized was when you look at any kind of uh, mental difficulty, um, no matter what you call it, one of the common things is a lack of flexibility. You know, we become rigid when we're suffering because it's hard to adapt um, or maybe our resources are overwhelmed. And so what ends up happening is we keep doing the same thing and we're not getting a different result or we're not willing to persist in something to make things different. So what they realized was someone who's psychologically healthy is flexible. They're versatile. They're able to adapt to a situation. And so they define psychological flexibility as paying attention to your circumstances and based on what the situation affords, persisting or changing my behavior based on what's important to me. So, for example, if family is really important to me, there are times I don't feel like getting out of bed and going to work, but I keep doing that because family's important to me. Or if I yell at my kids because I don't know what to do about their misbehavior, that tends to make things worse. So I've got to change my behavior in order to make sure family functions well. So sometimes I have to change what I'm doing. Sometimes I have to keep doing a certain thing. And that requires flexibility. If I just keep yelling and expecting the kids to just magically listen to me, you know, that's not going to work. Um, if I don't go to work, I'm not going to be able to support the family. And so how do we be flexible? They found six processes, if you're ready to hear this, in no particular order. One of them is that we need to remember we're much more than our problems and our thoughts and feelings and our roles. And what I mean by that is 
The opposite is I'm so lost in I'm an anxious person or I've got these problems or this is all that I do. It's hard to be flexible. But if you remember, okay, I do this for a living and I'm a father and I'm a brother and I've got these thoughts and anxieties here. But who I am is so much more than that. Gives me that perspective and that ability to move and change and I'm less stuck. Another one we touched on last time, I believe, defusion or decentering, this ability to step back from your thoughts, right? So instead of being stuck in the center of my thoughts or fused or stuck to my thoughts, you know, I'm a terrible person. Maybe that pops up if I'm having a bad day. Defusion is backing up from it and saying, oh, I'm having a thought that I'm a terrible person. That's probably telling me I'm having a bad day. So I can be more flexible when I'm less stuck and less caught up in my thoughts. Acceptance is the ability to notice reality as it is, whether I want it to be this way or not. You know, I may be suffering, I may be in pain. But if I don't accept what is here, I'm not going to be able to do anything with it. You know, fighting reality is just adding extra effort. And that includes the reality of how I'm feeling. You know, if I'm feeling anxious, I certainly don't want to feel anxious, but it's me, it's my own body. So developing a sense of compassion for myself helps me be more flexible. Another one is mindfulness or contact with the present moment, which of course we've been talking about a lot. Because as I said, you're not going to be able to do anything or take action or process anything if you're constantly off in your head. So to pay more attention to what's actually happening and ask yourself, what can I do right now at this moment? Values is another one. What's the point of all this? Why do I even get out of bed in the morning? What do I have to live for? Um, and it's sad how often people have a hard time answering that question because they get in such a robotic going through the motions kind of existence. So reconnecting, what is it for you that gives your life your life purpose, that gives you some direction? And keeping that in mind, this is what I'm doing all this for. And then committed action, which means what can I physically do to make these values appear in my life? Not in a far off kind of a way, right? So if, if I value my family, What's one thing I can do today? What's, what action can I take? Maybe I leave a little note before I go to work that says, uh, love you guys, hope you have a good day. You know, some very small thing. Then I'm living things that are important to me instead of, well, someday when work settles down or when I'm less busy or when I'm retired, you know, that is so far off. How can you take action in the present moment? And that's the only way things are going to change. So in summary acceptance is this is my reality whether i like it whether i don't i need to start from where i am and then the commitment part is what can i do today or in this moment even that will bring me closer to the things that matter to me and there's a ton of good research on this approach Well, Dr. Sears, thank you so much for sharing about mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and all the different permeations thereof. You finished talking about acceptance and commitment therapy. I was wondering if you can guide us through a useful 
meditation that kind of reflects some of the principles that you've shared with us about ACT? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do that because it's one thing to talk about it intellectually. So maybe if we take just a few minutes, each person can kind of reflect on each of those six processes. And I'll ask the questions of what areas you might feel a little bit stuck in and what would it look like to be more flexible with that. So that's a great idea. That sounds great. I'm looking forward to it. And if you're a first time listener of Mindfulness Off the Cushion, we will release this act inspired guided meditation from Dr. Sears in a future bonus episode. So stay tuned. And thank you so much again, Dr. Sears, for your time today. Yeah, great to be back again. Thank you.